If you want to follow along in your Bible, you can turn to the book of Philippians. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 3 to begin with. And I'm titling the message this morning, Fully Conformed to Christ. Fully Conformed to Christ. And I'm going to be talking about this theme both this morning and next Sunday. And then, as I mentioned to you last Sunday, we'll be heading into a new series during the season of Lent, which we'll be looking at the last week of Jesus' life up until Easter. I'm really excited about that. And we're going to be doing something during that season that I'm going to be focusing on both this morning and next Sunday. So in Philippians chapter 3, what we see is that Paul, he gives us some autobiographical uh, details about his life, about who he is, about what he has done up in his life until the time he met Christ on the road to Damascus, and then how in his encounter with Christ, his whole perspective, his whole purpose in life, it shifted. There was was a big change, and this is what he he writes. I'm going to begin reading in verse 7, Philippians 3, verse 7. He says this, But what things were gain to me? So he's talking about his fleshly pedigree here. The fact that he was of the tribe of Benjamin. The fact that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. The fact that he, according to the law, was blameless. The fact that he found his righteousness in the law. The fact that he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. The fact that according, uh, you know, know, he, he was so zealous, he says that he was persecuting Christians. And he found a lot of spiritual pride in his fleshly pedigree, even in his pharisaical spiritual pedigree. But what does he say? He says, what things were gained to me, all of those things, these things I have counted loss for Christ. Yet, indeed, I count all things not just the things he just listed, uh, listed about his spiritual pedigree and his fleshly pedigree, but he says everything about life. I, count, I have counted all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Now that's probably... That's a very soft translation there of the word. It could actually be translated as garbage or dung. I just, I I translate, I, I, I count them as filth, as rubbish. That I may what? That I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. That could also be translated, that which is through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. The righteousness which is from God by faith. Verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. So I count everything lost for for this purpose. That I may know Jesus Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. the, The communion, the koinonia of his sufferings. Being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Wow. So 
here we see Paul, and, and, and he's writing, and this is, you know, probably about how I was a disciple who sat at the feet of, of the best teacher in Jerusalem of that day. I sat at the feet of Gamaliel. How, how my spiritual pedigree really was flawless. I, I was probably going to be part of the great council, the Sanhedrin. I, I probably, you know, who, who knows what I could have done? Who knows what I, what I could have written? I, I could have been like the great rabbi Hillel or Shammai, someone whose name was prominent in Judaism. I, 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 had, I had all of my confidence in the things that I were doing for the Lord. And I even thought that the Lord wanted me to go and arrest Christians and, and have them persecuted and have them killed. I was so zealous for what I thought were the things of God. But when I met the risen Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus, I had a completely, you know, 180 degree turn in what I thought was righteous, right? And I began to understand that my righteousness was not found in myself, but my righteousness was found in my Savior, Jesus Christ. And that what righteousness looked like isn't what I thought it looked like. Righteousness looked like the life of Jesus Christ, both his suffering and his resurrection power shining through me. So I'm going to act totally different than the way I was acting. My life now is predestined, as he says in Romans 8, 29, to be conformed to the very image of Jesus. And he goes on in Philippians to talk about that that is the one thing I press toward, right? That, that I would have this full conforming both to the death and the risen life of Jesus, that, that his life would be manifest in me. You know, in, in Romans 6, he, he, he speaks similar, similarly to the way he's talking about in Philippians 3. And, and in Romans 6, he's talking about baptism, right? How in baptism, what happens is we die with Christ. So that what? We rise to newness of life. And he's saying, therefore, what I'm going to do is I'm going to mortify the members of my flesh. I'm going to put them to death. I'm going to make sure, you know, I put off the old man and I put on the new man. Why? Because I want to walk in light of who I am in Christ Jesus, right? I want to make sure that the old me, the old Josh, right? The one who is selfish, the one who is pride-filled, the, the one who is, you know, like Paul or the old sense Saul in a sense. I want to make sure that that old man is slain. That he is put off. I have nothing to do. No, I am a new person in Christ Jesus. I'm created in righteousness and holiness in Christ Jesus. I have the life of Jesus residing in me, the very resurrection power of God. And the way that that new life, the way that new resurrection life is going to shine through me is to the extent that that old man, Josh, is mortified and put to death, right? I don't want to have anything to do with that old man. Anyone here like me? God has given me a desire to have nothing to do with that old man, Josh. And to a certain extent, all of us, right, we have that desire. Amen. As Paul talks about in Romans 7, you know, sometimes I do things I don't want to do, right? He has a desire to not do them. Well, the, the, the way, you know, we're going to do that is, is, as he says in Philippians 3, is to, um, to know the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. As he says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified. With Christ Jesus, it is no longer I who live. We need to get to that place. But Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live 
by faith in the Son of God who loves me and who died for me, right? I'm conformed to his death. I've been crucified with him. Now I'm allowing the risen Christ inside me to have an expression outside of me. You know, one way Christians have sought to conform themselves to Christ's death so that his power of resurrection life is manifest inside them is through a denial of the flesh that we call fasting. And that's what I want to talk about. Okay, I want to talk about fasting this morning, and I want to talk about it next Sunday. And uh, the reason is, is because in two Wednesdays, we're going to celebrate something I've never celebrated before, but I, I think it uh, will be healthy for us, and that is we're going to celebrate Ash Wednesday. Ash Wednesday is the beginning of something that is traditionally called Lent, okay? Lent, it, it, it's just a word that really in the English it means the spring season, but in, in a lot of different languages it, it's tied to this idea of fasting, and it's something that Christians in the early church beginning around the 3rd century, 4th century, they began to have a season of fasting up into the time of Easter. And so a lot of churches continue to do that today. I know many of you probably have come from maybe Catholic backgrounds, and you know we know Catholics observe Lent, that's true. But a lot of other churches, uh, the Eastern Orthodox observe Lent, many Protestant churches, the Lutherans observe Lent, the Anglicans observe Lent, um, you know, a lot of Reformed churches, even a lot of non-denominational evangelical churches, they observe Lent. So they don't observe Lent for tradition's sake, right? They observe Lent for the sake of dying to self to the point where we have the resurrection power shining through us more. That's why it's observed up until Easter where we're saying, I'm going to make sure my flesh is mortified so the life of Jesus Christ and his resurrection power may be manifest in me. And so I'm going to take this season to intentionally afflict my flesh and say, Josh, you old Josh, you're not going to have a way in me anymore. I'm going to, I'm going to stomp my foot on you. I'm going to say, you're buried. You, you were buried in that baptism, and I'm going to keep you down there. You're trying to get afloat again. No, I'm, going to, I'm going to push you down, right? I'm going to hold you under. And that's one thing that we do when we fast, right? When we fast. Now, I know Christians, right, they, they have all sorts of traditions of, of when they fast. I know some Christians like to, to have the tradition of fasting in the new year, right, beginning in, in January 1st. And they say, this is a new year. I'm going to begin it with a fast, a cleansing of my body, a cleansing of, of my soul. It's going to be good. That's wonderful. Fasting in the new year is great. Others say, I'm going to have the more traditional time, the season of Lent. And, you know, that's wonderful and that's great. Other people say, well, I'm going to do it, you know, at some other time of the year. And, uh, you know, that's wonderful and great. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 11:27. He said this about his life. He said, in weariness and toil, he was, he was often in weariness and toil, and in, in sleepness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. You notice what he says here. He, he distinguishes in hunger and in thirst often, and in fastings often. Meaning this, meaning that when he was in hunger and when he was in thirst often, that was unintentional, <laughs> okay? When he was in fasting, that means it was intentional. What does that mean? This means that Paul intentionally fasted food often, he says. And, you know, we don't want to make... Uh, so what I'm going to do here 
this morning and next Sunday this morning, I'm going to show you the spiritual purpose of fasting throughout Scripture. And then next Sunday, what I'm going to show you are the many different kinds of fasts in Scripture, which I think there are 10 plus different kinds of fasts, and how you might discern you want to engage in fasting for the next seven Sundays, okay? And there's a lot of different ways you can do it, and um, I'm excited about it. I'm excited about it, not because my flesh is excited about it, right? No one's flesh is excited about fasting. But I'm excited about it because I know what's on the other side, right? What's on the other side about it, of it? You know, here's the thing, right? Like I said, no, no one really likes the word fasting, right? Why? Because how many here like food? Is it just me? We all like food, right? Why do we like food? Because God created food. God created our taste buds. He created the thousands of varieties of different food, right? When God formed Adam, <laughs> uh, what did he say? Let's read it. He says in Genesis 2.16, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. So when man was created, and God plucked him up from the dust of the earth, and he placed him in the special garden that he planted just for him, did he say, Adam, I command you now, you're supposed to fast. No, the first command was, Adam, I command you now, you got a free buffet of anything you want to eat. And here he is, right? He's looking at the most gorgeous uh, garden human history has ever known, right? In the pre-fallen world. He's looking at all the orchards of trees that God had just specially planted for him. All the different kinds, all of the apples and bananas and apricots and plums and all the avocados and pineapples and mangoes, all of the cocoa beans and coffee beans. He's like, you know, uh, Eve, start brewing the coffee, right? Make me a chocolate cake, right? Let's have some bananas on top, right? All the raspberries and strawberries. And they're really excited, right? God says, oh my goodness, I'm freely giving you of all of it to eat. Well, what happens? Well, well, before we get to what happens, God then expands in the time of Noah what they can eat. He says, I'm not just giving you all those beautiful uh, fruits that I made taste good for you. He said to Noah, he said, I'm giving you of all the flesh to eat too, right? All of the animals, right? You can have steak, you can have chicken, you can have slow, uh, you know, cooked pork ribs, whatever you want. I'm giving it all for you to eat. And um, so, you know, we have a feast that is given, a, us to, given to us by God, and it is good. And um, in fact, God rebukes those who would have people fully abstain from any food. This is what Paul says about false teachers in 1 Timothy 4, verse 3. He said these false teachers uh, forbid to marry. Um, you know, whenever I think of this, whenever I hear this, the first thing that comes to my mind is um, the Catholic Church uh, forbidding priests to marry. And I think Paul called that a doctrine of demons in 1 Timothy 4. We should never forbid anyone to marry. No one is forbidden to marry. He says, forbidding to marry another doctrine of demons, and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. That's why in Acts chapter 10, 
when God let down, had, uh, showed that great vision, when Peter was in, in a trance in Joppa, and he showed uh, the linen sheet come down. Uh, you know, the linen, it, it symbolized the holiness. It is what wrapped the priest and what was in it, all kinds of unclean animals. What does God, what does God tell Peter to do? Rise and be a hunter, kill it. And he said, start to eat it. And God thundered it at him. And he had to thunder it at him three times because Peter's like, no, I'm not going to do it. And God's like, what I have cleansed, you must not call unclean. Well, you know, uh, Mark, he tells us uh, in his gospel that, you know, by pronouncement that Jesus made all, all foods clean. Everything is clean. Everything is permissible. Everything is allowed to be eaten. And, and, and in fact, look what uh, Paul goes on to say in verse Timothy 4, verse 4. For every creature of God is good and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. In fact, when Jesus sent out his disciples on a mission, he, he gave them a command. He said, eat whatever food is placed before you. And, uh, you know, uh, this is why a lot of times when missionaries go around the world, you know, and they, they go to some of these more primitive areas with primitive tribes, and they get some pretty gnarly food set before them, right? Like stuff you can't even imagine. You're like, oh my goodness, they eat this stuff? And you say, yeah, you can eat it. Why? It's sanctified by the word of God in prayer, okay? How does the Bible end? It just doesn't begin with God giving everybody a free buffet, a feast. It ends with a great feast. It ends with the marriage supper of the Lamb, right? A feast for everyone who enters the joys of eternal life. So he gives us a feast at the beginning. He gives us a feast of the greatest imagination in the end. And, and, and what we get from all this is that food is good. Eating is a blessing, right? What does he do for hungry people? He multiplies bread and fish. God made us dependent creatures who need to survive, and God loves when we feast and enjoy the blessings of the vast variety of food that he is, um, has created. So anyone who engages in fasting because they believe certain foods are bad or because they think the body is evil or, or because they, they feel guilty and they feel like they need to work themselves into God's love, you're not fasting with a proper perspective, right? Our bodies are good. Food is good. And God loves us freely because of the sacrifice of his son on the cross. So if you're fasting because you're full of guilt and condemnation, and, and, and that's the wrong perspective to fasting. So why then do we fast? Well, after we're told that God gave Adam of every tree in the garden to freely eat, we're told that he also gives them one stipulation. The next verse, Genesis 2.17. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So Adam's looking at, at this beautiful garden. He's looking at orchards of unimaginable glory, hundreds of different fruits. And he says, yeah, God says, you see that, that, one, that one little orchard there in the midst of the garden? I just don't want you to eat of that tree. <laughs> I just want you to abstain. I want you to fast from one type of food, the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, many Bible scholars, they believe that that fast was not, uh, or that command was not meant to be permanent, but that it was temporary. 
For, and the reason why is because later in the Bible, the knowledge of good and evil is spoken of as something that is good, and that's something that God blessed his righteous kings with. Um, so, kind of like how infants, right? You don't give a steak to an infant. How many know that? So God didn't want to give the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil to Adam and Eve. And in some ways, they needed to grow. They needed to mature. They needed the milk before the meat. And that was God's intention with this initial prohibition. He wanted Adam to grow in the essentials before he was matured and given the authority to rule that the tree of knowledge represented. But how many know Adam, like little kids, he wasn't patient, right? And he grasped for something that God knew would not be good for him at that time. He wanted immediate gratification. He wanted everything now. He wanted all of the wisdom, authority, and all the created blessings of God's good creation all at once. And because, God, or because Adam refused to be dependent on, on God, and because he refused God's ordained fast, and instead sought wisdom and fullness in himself, he ultimately rebelled against God, and he fell into sin, he fell into shame, he fell into condemnation, he realized he was naked, and he fled from the presence of God. Now, thankfully, right, that's not the end of mankind's story. In fact, God comes, and he says, you know what, I'm going to clothe you with a sacrifice, and I'm going to give you a promise that there's going to be a seed who's going to crush a serpent's head. And that's the cool thing, right? We get to the story of a new lineage for mankind, one that would begin with a new Adam. In fact, we call him the last Adam, and that is the man, Jesus Christ, right? And when Jesus came into the world, what God wanted him to temporarily fast from, he fully consented to the will of God. Jesus did not prematurely grasp for the kingly mantle like Adam did. Instead, he humbled himself to the point of suffering. And at the right time, in due time, God exalted Jesus Christ. So the Gospels begin with Jesus, especially Mark's Gospel. It begins with Jesus being baptized in the Jordan and then tells us about how he what? What did he do after he was baptized? He fasted for 40 days in the wilderness. In John chapter 4, when his disciples brought him some food to eat, he told them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And he did finish that work when he went to the cross and offered his life as a sacrifice once and for all. And God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name. He is now at the place man was always intended to be, at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning, free from all sin and corruption, from, from suffering to glory, that's where Christ is, and that's where his people are with him. So what does that have to do with us? Well, Jesus says a disciple is not above his master. That's what Luke 640, Jesus says. A disciple is not above his master. We must all go through a maturation process. You know, thank God, you know, that when we receive Christ, we're justified. We're in right standing. We're raised with him in heavenly places. But throughout the New Testament, we're constantly shown that the Christian life is one of constant maturing. There is a sanctification process that needs to take place, right? 
We also need to learn how to be humbly dependent on our Heavenly Father in our journey to the ultimate feast, just like Jesus was. And one thing we see in the teaching of Jesus is that he indicates his disciples would be people who fast just like he fasted. In fact, let's look at the Sermon on the Mount where he begins with a discussion on prayer in Matthew chapter 6, verse 5. He um, expects that his disciples would be people of prayer. He says this, And when you pray, not if you pray, when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites. For they love to pray standing in the synagogue and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. Jesus then goes on to, to show them how to pray, right? He gives them the model prayer. There is an expectation that they will distinguish themselves from the hypocritical Jewish leaders of that day who prayed for show before people. That his disciples would actually right, go into their prayer closet and just pray before the Father who sees them in secret, right? Um, that their lives would be characterized not as a show, a religious show for men, but their lives, it would be characterized by wanting to have an actual personal relationship with God, just like, like Paul says in Philippians 3, that I might know him, right? That I might know him. Well, there's another expectation of Jesus after expecting his disciples would seek a relationship with the Father in heaven, that, that they would pray. It's that, that they would fast. This was what he goes on to say in, in verse 16. He says, moreover, when you fast, not if you fast. He says, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance. For they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. They got the applause of men. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your father who is in the secret place. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Wow, what a promise from Jesus. He says, when you fast. Like he said, when you pray. There's an expectation that we would fast just as much as we would pray. Now, nowhere does Jesus give us a command to fast, right? Nor does he tell us exactly the type of fasting he wants us to engage in, but there is still an expectation at some level that all of his disciples will, will fast. And there are some guidelines of things we should do when we fast, like making sure it's an activity, like prayer, that is done for the Father and not for man, right? It's kind of like Jesus in Luke 18 when he tells a parable about the Pharisee and the tax collector, how they both come to the temple and how they're praying, right? And the tax collector, he's portrayed as a sinner, and the Pharisee, he's portrayed as this self-righteous person. And, and, and part of the prayer of the Pharisee, he says, I thank you, God, I'm not like other men, right? I, and one thing he says is, I fast twice a week, right? He's praying in, in a loud voice for everyone to hear. I, I, I fast twice a week. But, but remember, the tax collector, he, he couldn't even look up to God, he, and, he, and he beat his chest, and he said, be merciful to me, a sinner. And who does Jesus say went away justified? It was the tax collector, right? Not the self-righteous Pharisee. Well, you know, here, you know, the Pharisees, them fasting wasn't a bad thing. It was how they were fasting. 
In fact, we know the early Christian communi communities, one of the earliest Christian documents we have after the New Testament writings is something called the Didache. And in the Didache, we're told how the early Christians, that they also, many of them, would fast two days a week. But instead of fasting, I, I think the Jewish religious leaders would fast on Tuesdays and Thursdays. They wanted to distinguish themselves, so they would uh, fast on Mondays and Wednesdays. And it wouldn't be as much for show. It, it would be according to sort of the discipline and, and the teaching and the framework of Jesus. But a lot of them, they said, you know, we're going to continue sort of this activity of fasting. Of course, many of the early Christians were Jews, maybe came out of that practice, right? And they say, we're going to continue this practice. We think it's helpful, but we're going to have it purified in light of Jesus Christ, right? And so, you know, a second passage that signifies Jesus's expectation that his disciples would fast, that you and I would fast, is found in Matthew chapter 9. And in Matthew chapter 9, verse 14, this is uh, what, what we're told, Matthew writes, Then the disciples of John came to him, to Jesus, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. So John the Baptist's disciples were confused, right, because the disciples of Jesus weren't fasting like they were fasting. <laughs> Rather, they were enjoying their time with Jesus, and they were constantly around people's tables, and they were celebrating with food, right? It was a time of great celebration. But Jesus said there would be a day when they would fast, when he would be taken away. Now, in its most immediate contents, when was Jesus taken away? Well, we could say he was taken away from them in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? He was literally bound, and all the disciples were removed from the presence of the bridegroom, Jesus. And I would imagine from, you know, that, that time, Good Friday morning up until Resurrection Sunday, I imagine that all of the disciples were deeply distressed and were probably fasting, okay? This is why, actually, it's another tradition among Christians that, They'll engage in a fast from Good Friday to Easter Sunday, just remembering that time when the Lord was taken away. But I think it also has another meaning, not just him being physically taken away in the Garden of Gethsemane, but I think it, of course, has to do with the sense of his resurrection and ascension. Because Jesus himself, he referred to his ascension in one sense as a going away. In fact, in, um, I think it's John 16, 7, he says, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. So, you know, though, right, Jesus, we know, is with you. How many are glad Jesus is with you, with you, right? In fact, Jesus said, after he uh, rose from the grave, before he ascended, he said, lo, I am what? I am with you always, even to the end of the age. In fact, in his, uh, during his last supper, during his discourse, he said, if anyone loves me, I and my Father will come, and we will make our home inside them. You and I are the temple of the Lord Most High. Jesus is always with us. That is an established fact. It is an established truth. But it is also a truth that in some sense, Jesus is away. Okay? And so in some sense, we have what, what Paul calls the down payment or we have the earnest of the presence of God. We have the Holy Spirit. 
We certainly have the glory of that new life, of eternal life, of resurrection life, but we only have it in part, right? And so what do we desire? We desire a vision of the fullness of Jesus Christ, right? In fact, this is why Paul writes, in, in talking about a sense in which we are away from Christ, he says in 2 Corinthians 5.8, he says, to be absent from the body is to be what? To be present with the Lord, meaning there was a sense in which I was present with the Lord when I am in the body, but there is a much greater sense in which I am present with the Lord when I am out of the body. That's why he says to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 1, for me to live is Christ, but to die is what? It is, it is gain. And so, you know, we need to, there's a sense in which Christians long to see Jesus face to face. John wrote, we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And because we have that ultimate hope, we purify ourselves even as Christ is pure, meaning we abide in his life and in his death. We abide in his grace. We mortify the flesh that the power of resurrection life may be palpably present with us. We know the vision that we are headed toward, and we want to experience even more of that vision in this earthly walk, in this earthly life. So the church age is a season when the fullness of Christ's presence is partially absent from us in a sense. We, we, you, and, 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 and because that is the case, Jesus says we are called to fast. And as we fast, we long for that deeper experience of the presence of God who is with us as we move toward the fullness of his presence. We desire a deeper conformity to the life of Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 29, I mentioned already, Paul says that we are predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, and we desire more of that conformity now. We fast to get the fleshly desires out of the way so that we can more fully experience the lover of our souls who resides inside of us. And, 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 and so fasting is really about getting the flesh out of the way. It is really God's, one of God's appointed ways, one of God's appointed means that we're humbled. Peter says this in 1 Peter 5, likewise you younger people submit to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility for God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. You know anything Anything that uh, will enable us to humble ourselves is a priceless blessing from God. That is why we can rejoice in the idea of fasting. Because it means, um, you know, that um, God is going to lift us up. James 4 verse 10 says, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up. Notice we're called to humble ourselves, Right? You know, many people ask for God to humble them. No, he's saying, humble yourselves. Humble yourselves. God does occasionally humble people like he did in Daniel chapter 4 where he humbled Nebuchadnezzar. But you, it, it's a much better pathway to go where you humble yourselves, right? And um, one way we can do that, one way we can intentionally humble ourselves is through fasting. In fact, in the... In, the way fasting is described in the Old Testament primarily is an affliction of the soul. There was one corporate day of fasting for God's people, and it was the Day of Atonement. 
And this is what uh, God told Israel in Leviticus 16.31 about the Day of Atonement. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest for you, and you shall afflict your souls. It is a statute forever. Um, so afflict means humble. You will humble your souls. In that day, you will humble your souls. What would happen on the Day of Atonement? The high priest would enter the Holy of Holies, and he would make a sacrifice for all of Israel's sins, their intentional sins and their unintentional sins. And, and on that day, when that perfect sacrifice was made for all of the sins of Israel, he didn't want them to do anything, right? He didn't want them to work. He didn't want them to play. He didn't want them to eat. Rather, they were to be people who were completely at rest. Their souls were to be fully humbled on their knees. And that is how God's people would benefit. They would benefit by a provision that he was solely doing on their behalf. You know, we benefit when we humble ourselves, when we're at rest, and we say yes and amen to the word of God and the promises of God. That's what the Day of Atonement is about. It's about, look at what I am doing for you, afflict your souls, and just receive it on your behalf. This is why in Acts 27, um, Paul refers to the Day of Atonement as the fast. The fast. Uh, because all the Jews on that day understood the afflicting and humbling of one's souls meant to fast. Um, now in, in Psalm 35, 13, speaking of his enemies who would rise up against him, for his harm, this is what David says. He says, But as for me, when they were sick, when my enemies were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled myself with fasting, and my prayer would return to my own heart. So he humbled his soul with fasting, or he afflicted his soul with fasting. Why do we need to humble our soul? Well, how many know your soul can be quite egotistical, right? It can be quite arrogant. It can be quite filled with a lot of fleshly thoughts. Our soul is comp comprised of our will and our intellect and our emotions, what we want, what we think, what we feel. And, and, and according to the flesh and, 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 and his unrenewed mind, his unrenewed soul, David could have been tempted to act toward his enemies like they had been acting toward him, right? <laughs> but he says, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow the precepts of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. That great seed of mine who's coming a thousand years later, yeah, instead of, instead of going back at my enemies, enemies, I'm going to fast for them and I'm going to pray for them, right? So he refused that temptation. He humbled his soul with fasting to gain the mind of Christ. It is not important what we want, think, or feel, but what God wants, thinks, and feels. And fasting coupled with prayer helps us be in line with the mind of Jesus Christ. Now I want to end with, with one passage here. Um, well, two passages, but one, one primary passage, it's in Isaiah 58. In, I, in Isaiah 58, we are given an in-depth discussion of what true fasting looks like versus false fasting. And I'm going to share with you part of the uh, challenge I'm going to give us for this season of the seven weeks leading up to Easter, which I'll talk about more next Sunday, but I'm going to just briefly mention it here. And you know, at, at this time, Israel was fasting for a day in Isaiah 58. They're fasting for a day in order to gain help from God. But guess what? The help didn't come for them. Why? Because they weren't fasting properly. And so God speaks through the prophet Isaiah, and he brings correction to them. This is what it says in Isaiah 58, verse 3. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen? 
Why have we afflicted our souls? And you take no notice. Right? They're complaining. God, you didn't do what we wanted. We fasted. We tried to twist your arm, and you didn't do it. Goes on to say, in fact, in the day of your fast, you find pleasure. So they're saying they're afflicting their souls, but God says, actually, you're finding pleasure. And exploit all your laborers. Indeed, you fast for strife and debate and to strike with the fist of wickedness. You will not fast as you do this day to make your voice heard on high. Is it a fast that I have chosen a day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head like a bulrush and to spread out sackcloth and ashes? Would you call this a fast and an acceptable day to the Lord? So, right, they're not really fasting, God says, though they wanted deliverance from their enemies. They were treating their own people horribly. There was exploitation of workers, violence, all sorts of nonsense in their community. What God was really wanting was, was not them solely abstaining from food, but abstaining from their own wicked ways and oppression. He was wanting them to be conformed to the character of Jesus Christ. He was after a true heart repentance, like not a, a rending of, of their clothes and ashes, but a rending of their heart. He goes on to say this in verse 6, Is this not the fast that I have chosen to loose the bonds of wickedness? Meaning, in their community, amongst their relationships with others. To undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry? And is it is that you bring to your house the poor who are cast out when you see them naked, and you cover them, and not hide yourself from, uh, from your own flesh? Then your light shall break forth like the morning, your healing shall bring forth shall spring forth speedily, and your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, and speaking wickedness, if you extend your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, then your light shall dawn in the darkness, and your darkness shall be as noonday. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought and strengthen your bones. You shall be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Those from among you shall build the old waste places. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations and you shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. Wow. God has a great, great big vision for what their fasting should look like, right? And look at all of the blessings he said would be attached to true fasting, which was really the spread of a God kind of love in the community, right? Where it's taking care of people's needs, where it's saying, I'm going to fast my meal, and the meal I fast, I'm going to give to the guy who doesn't have any meals, right? <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fast some of my clothing, clothing I don't need, I'm going to give, and I'm going to give it to the guy who doesn't have any clothes, right? I'm going to see justice done in the community through this fast. It's not just going to be, it's not a spiritual exercise to manipulate God to do what I want. Rather, it's a spiritual exercise to get my heart aligned with God so I do the things he wants me to do, right? Where I view people with his eyes, I view people with his love, and, and there's righteousness that springs out in the community. And, and he talks about how your health, right? All these promises like your health will spring forth. I'm going to talk about some of the many benefits of health just in terms of fasting. You know, God has designed and created our bodies in such a way 
where <laughs> fasting, he's, uh, he creates as like a, a spring cleaning for our body. How many know who here does spring cleaning in their house? Like sometimes your house gets a little dirty and you're like, man, I need spring cleaning, I need fall cleaning, I need, I need winter cleaning, right? <laughs> if you got little kids, you know what I'm talking about, right? I need Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday cleaning, right? Well, fasting is like that. Well, I'm going to talk about this more next week, but God has literally designed cells in your body that when you fast, like they go into hyper-awesome God mode, and they start gobbling up all the bad cells in your body, and your, your body goes into a reset. It goes into a, a cleaning mode. It's, it's really awesome. But it's not just about the physical benefits we get from, from fasting. That's not primarily what God is. That is a blessing he gives. You know, God gives, God gives blessings to everybody, right? This is what Jesus makes plain in his Sermon on the Mount. God makes his son rise on, on the just and the unjust, right? So God, he, he freely gives his blessing. Paul in Acts 14, he talks about how, how God gives his blessings to peoples all across the earth, right? Bountiful food, everything. Well, in the same way, he gives the blessing even of those who are secular, and, um, you know, are fasting, and they're agnostics, and they just want the, the physical blessings of fasting. Well, God says, I'm going to give you that physical blessing, because that's how I designed your body, you know, to, to react in that way. But I'm going to give my people even more, right? And, and there's going to be a greater blessing when, when we understand the true purposes of fasting, and that is for justice to break out in the community. And that's really the challenge that I'm going to explain more next Sunday, but I just want to mention this morning. What I want us to do for the seven weeks that lead up to Easter, not uh, so beginning Ash Wednesday, which is Valentine's Day as well. I got a really, I, I'm excited about that. I'm going to talk about the love of God and entering more deeply into the love of God. And part of the way we're going to do that is through fasting. Is um, what I want us to do is I want to follow some of these principles of Isaiah 58. And I'm going to lay out the different kinds of fasts we can do next Sunday, the 10 plus different biblical fasts, what fasts you might want to consider, whether it's one meal a week. You know, you have 21, most of us have 21 meals a week, right? If you fast one meal a week for seven weeks, that's seven meals, that's, that's not bad. That's two meals a week out of the 21 meals, that's 14 meals. And what I want us to do is whatever we would spend on that meal, I want us to set it aside. I want us to have a fasting fund. You know, you say, man, I, I would have gone to McDonald's, and man, I wanted that Big Mac combo. <laughs> I don't know how much it was, it was probably like 15 bucks now, right? So instead of spending 15 bucks, I'm going to forego that meal, and I'm going to put it in my fasting fund. And I'm going to do that for seven weeks. And I'm going to do that twice a week. Well, if you do that, that's 30 bucks for seven weeks. That's 210 bucks. That's just two meals. You know, if we had 50 people participate in that, and everyone, 210 bucks, 200 times 50, that's, that's $10,000. You know, what I want, to want us to do is I want us to have a benevolence fund where we fast, and we set aside all of the money we would have spent on ourselves, and we have an offering Easter morning, right? And we come with our fasting fund, our benevolence fund. And 100% of that benevolence fund, as we pull it together, we're going to use 100% for benevolence in our community, right? 
And so that's, what I, that's the challenge I want us to do, okay? And there's different kinds of, like I said, there's different kinds of fasts, different things we can fast. I'm not talking about necessarily a full water fast, right? There's many different kinds of fasts. We're going to get into that next Sunday. But I just want to plant this seed in your thought. And, and I just want us to have a big vision. And over the next several weeks, we'll, we'll, we'll be uh, giving ideas of things we want to do to help those in need with the funds that come in. And the more funds that we can come in, collectively, communally, the more we can do for those who are in need. Amen? Amen. So we're going to get ready to take communion. Anyone here not receive a communion element, go ahead and raise your hand.